Good morning, everyone. On this lovely day. Um, as you know, I've been going through the precepts as a series and doing some talks on them. And the one I want to take up today is engaging in sexual intimacy respectfully and with an open heart. Now, <clears throat> to begin with, this precept is a little bit different from some of the others in that um, where this precept's around um, uh, taking up the path of engaging with others with openness and possibility and not criticising the faults of other people, not stealing, not lying. They're obviously um, not very constructive things to do. But when it comes to sexuality, you, then there's a different way of looking at it because um, sexuality is something that can be misused but it's also a, a wonderful energy that we have that can actually create intimacy. So it's not like it's just a negative energy, it can be used in a, it's a very powerful energy that's within us that can either be used in a very negative or destructive way, but it can be used in a positive way as well. So we need to speak to both sides of it. And if you break down the words that Diane has used in wording this one, engaging in sexual intimacy respectfully and with an open heart. To my mind, she's put in both of those words because respectfully is referring to how we engage with the other as a sexual partner and an open heart is our relationship with ourself in the way that we actually engage with sexuality. Um, the traditional wording of this, of this precept is not misusing sex, but originally in where the precepts arose was in a monastic setting. So in a monastic setting where there was celibacy, then the precept was no sex. Um, but um, as, a, as lay practitioners, you know, then the precept becomes not misusing sex rather than no sex. Uh, the funny thing about this is that we've gone from where, you know, through views about sexuality arising out of monastic traditions and also through um, our own Western cultural background where sex is seen as being bad, right? And now we live in an age today, if you're not having sex, there's something wrong with you, right? So take your pick. <laughs> and... Um, I really want to address that because um, it's, uh, you know, sexuality is a very personal thing. Some people choose, you know, to be sexually active, that's fine. Some people choose either as a lifelong decision um, or as a decision for some time in their life um, that they don't want to be sexually active. And I really want to emphasise that all of those options are fine as long as it's an option which is not based on um, grasping, but also, too, that it's not a decision based on fear and it's not a, a decision based on apathy. And uh, in terms of a statement about engaging with this precept, in Diane's book, there is a, she puts in a statement by a, a student who is worded it in their own way. This is part of what you do when you take the precepts formally. 
I take up the way of stepping into sexual intimacy, not only naked in body, but in heart. I take up the way of stepping into sexual intimacy, not only naked in body, but in heart. And I take up the way of meeting the craving as well as the fear of the craving, the desire for closeness, as well as the fear of closeness, the greed for power, as well as the fear of power, the escape, as well as the union. And to me, that statement by that student, whoever he or she is, in my mind, has really nailed it you know, around this precept because it addresses both sides of it, how it can how a desire can be a grasping kind of experience, you know, or even exploitative of others, but there's the other side of it, the aversion to it, the fear around it, as well as the apathy and ignorance there may be around it as well. So I think that's a wonderful, a wonderful statement by a student of actually um, addressing and, and embracing, embracing in their own way this particular precept. Um, if we first of all look at some of the ways that um, sexuality may be misused, well, let's just first go through the, the really obvious gross ways it can be through violent sex, rape, indecent assault, sexual harassment, sexual abuse of children, etc. But there's, they're, the, they're, the, they're the criminal ways in which it can be, but there's more subtle ways in which um, sexuality may be misused as, all, as well. Um, one which is very... Because I work as a couple therapist, as you know, and I do with this every day, this, this is just everyday experience for me in my life. I talk about sexuality and intimacy on a daily basis with people, so it's very familiar with me. But one of the most common issues that leads to um, couples presenting in couple therapy is one person's discovered an infidelity, you know, an affair that the other person has had. So that needs addressing too, because um, an affair by, ne by definition is something that happens secretively. So most couples will tend to sign up for monogamy and so if some, one person has an affair, then they're going outside of that ethical contract that both have made together. And uh, whether we believe in the institution of marriage or monogamy or not, the, the outcome of that I've, I've seen over the years is when the sense of betrayal that people have when they've found out that a partner um, has, had, has broken that contract, it, it's, it's traumatic for a lot of people. You know, it's worse than even being hit in some ways. It's, it can be very traumatic. So when that sense of trust is broken, it can have a very deep impact on, on other people. Um, sometimes I come across couples who've chosen to have an open relationship, and I don't have any issue with that if that's what they've... They, I don't have any judgment around it in terms of whether that's they decided so they have a more polyamorous type of relationship with other people. Um, on that I had um, a friend from years ago who was in a lesbian relationship and she told me that, um, that that's what had been her experience and I said well from a couple therapist's point of view 
I very rarely come across people with that kind of relationship where it seemed to work, you know, and it seemed to trickle off a lot of jealousy and possessiveness and, and so on. And she said, yeah, but you're a couple therapist, you've got a biased point of view. <laughs> you, you only see people where it doesn't work. Well, fair enough point. <laughs> Maybe the, the experience is where it does. In couple therapy, there's one, one couple who I did come across where they chose to have that kind of relationship and, it's, and it is an instance where I thought it was actually done very maturely um, and very respectfully and then when they decided to have children they decided to become monogamous again and they shifted it. Um, so I don't want to make any moral judgments about that but where people agree to a monogamous relationship and then it's broken um, I can tell you from 30, 40 years of couple therapy experience that the, the consequences or the karma of it is, is often very traumatic for a lot of people. But there's some of the more, more obvious ways in which, um, and moral ways in which sex may be misused. But let look, let's look at some of the more subtle ways. Um, it, it can be used as escapism, you know, and, and funnily enough, even though we associate sexuality with intimacy, is that sex can be an escape from intimacy, you know, um, and uh, where it appears as though it's sort of very open and so on, but it actually becomes a way of avoiding self-disclosure, you know, like emotional intimacy. You know, that comes through talking about your own feelings or your thoughts or showing, sharing your inner being with someone else. That's even scarier, right? Um, there's a lot of fear around that. And so just being actively sexual all the time without engaging that emotional intimacy can, can be a kind of escapism. Or it can be an escapism from loneliness, right? Another way where it can, sex can be misused in a way is when it becomes addictive. And you know there are 12-step programs called um, Sex and Love Addiction Anonymous, right, where people go to deal with this because they recognise they have an addiction with sexuality and, and love in the romantic sense, like people have with alcohol and drugs and so on. So like any kind of addiction, becomes a way of trying to escape from unwanted, painful, unpleasant kind of experiences. There's even a new trend today which I've come across, which is people who get involved like in marathon, running, swimming events, um, excessive exercise and gym work and so on as a way of numbing out their sexuality so they don't feel sexual anymore. And whether they do it intentionally or not, I don't know but that's one of the impacts that it has. Um, the question as a Zen student around dealing with this very powerful energy that we have and that we're born with is do we, can we open into it? Do you know, is sexual freedom is kind of opening into that energy when it arises without it being pulled around by grasping or avoided through fear 
or numbed out in some kind of way. You know, can be numbed out through alcohol, for instance. Um, once I had a, um, a Catholic priest who I saw in counselling and he told me of an, an in-joke that there is amongst Catholic priests who are obviously celibate. He said, um, if you can't have duty, at least you can have punch. <laughs> so obviously their alcohol is a way of numbing out sexual feelings, right? But it's perhaps not just um, priests, Catholic priests who do that. So again, see, come back to the basics of Buddhism. It's not desire which is the problem. It's not sexual desire that's the problem. It's the grasping that's added on to it. It's the fear that's added on to it. And it's the ignorance or apathy or the numbing out in which we deal with it. They're, they're the issue. It's not sexuality itself. Now, it's probably important in talking about sexuality to, to bring a bit of... Uh, psychology into it as well as a well way of understanding it, an evolutionary psychology. And what's important to recognise about our human condition and our human nature is that we have two systems that are working side by side. And it, it's just in our DNA that we're programmed to reproduce the species. So the species survives, right? So we have a a sexual urge and there's and there's pleasure you know connected with that so that we want to do it and that's just basic mammalian sexual drive that's that's in everyone's dna we didn't choose whether we got it or not it just comes with being an animal with being a human being right and it's there for an evolutionary purpose so there's this there's this one very powerful drive this sort of raw energy but if we didn't have any ethics or morality or anything around it, we'd just have opportunistic sex whenever we could or want, like, like some primates do. Mm-hmm. So we have that system, and then we have another system which are very, is a very strong part of being a mammal and being part of a family and a tribe, is that we have an attachment bonding system. Right? So and like many other animals, we pair bond in particular. And we want to have a sense of, you know, a special connection with another person and that we can share with. And it's also a way of surviving. You know, you have people around you where there's these mutual agreements, you know, and, and deep bonds of love and engagement so that we can survive through life to better, you know, right? and that we can... Um, and that we can we can deepen levels of, of love in our in our experience of life. So both of those systems are within us. We we can't get away from it. That's just the way we are. The question is, can we work with those different energies within us so that they work in harmony, or that they become conflictual with one another? That's the challenge. It's possible that they can work in harmony. Um, sometimes we work with one being dominant to the detriment of the other, but how can they be integrated together? That is the big question. And how do we do that creatively? Um, one of the ways in traditional Buddhism in Eastern countries, but not just the East, um, in which this was recognised and developed into practice is through the practice of Tantra. Um, 
which comes from yoga origins as well as um, Buddhist origins, particularly Tibetan Buddhist origins. And as a, if you're interested in that and you're interested in, in understanding that more, there's a really good book that I can recommend, which is called Cupid's Poison Arrow um, by a woman called Marnia Robinson. It's a wonderful book. It's quite a thick book and it's partly autobiographical, partly funny, um, as it should be, and it's loaded with a lot of modern neuroscience as a way of understanding um, tantric sexuality and how it works. But it's a way of integrating sexuality into spiritual practice, which is actually enhancing the attachment bonding experience, the experience of love, so that that stays alive and is cultivated in a relationship rather than sexual and sexual energy just being purely physical so it opened it's a way of opening the heart to you know, and dealing with all the fear and the grasping and aversion that may come around it um because it's my profession dealing with this i could probably talk for about the next two hours about <laughs> this but i won't um but one of the most important principles that come into dealing with sexuality in couple therapy um, are the principles of what we call self-validation and other validation. And other validation is when I feel good and feel loved because my partner has given me something that makes me feel that way. It might be sexual intimacy or affection or whatever or compliment or whatever it might be. But it comes from the outside in. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, and we, we exchange that in relationships all the time. Self-validated intimacy is my relationship with myself, right? particularly, so what happens if my partner doesn't give me what I want? How do I deal with that? Right? Which comes up in relationships all the time, whether it's around affection, sexuality, whatever. How do I deal with that when I don't get what I want? And the mature and immature ways in which people deal with that is what creates unhealthy kind of dynamics around sexuality and intimacy and human relationships. So there's many, the immature ways in which we deal with that when we don't get what we want, um, it varies. It could be um, being pushy, being more forceful, that'd be the, the grasping way of it. Or we sulk, you know, become passive-aggressive, withdraw. That would be another way of dealing with it. Or we kind of do the apathy version of it and we go, oh, well, it didn't matter anyway. Right? And we ignore our feelings. You know, and the, 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 the mature way is to recognise what, what reaction or what kind of emotional response when we get no and then we take responsibility for dealing with those feelings. So if disappointment arises, then it's like we recognise it like we do in Zazen and we observe it and we come towards it and we open into it and we, we find an equanimity in actually engaging with that experience. And this is how... These are important things to understand. So 
There's nothing wrong with other validated intimacy, but a, but a really grounded relationship is where both people can stand on their own two feet and they can both self-validate. You've got that going and you've got a solid relationship. Um, if you've got people just looking for the love coming from the outside and, and that's, that's their only source of getting it so when it comes from the outside in, that's a shaky relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, it's fine when it comes, but how do you deal with it when it doesn't come? Mm-hmm. That's how we grow. That's how we grow through sexuality and intimacy into a, from a, an immature relationship into a mature one. And in a sense, you know, how you deal with that is, is your business. How your partner deals with it is their business. Right? It's none of your business. Your business is about how you, how you grow your own intimacy within a relationship. So they're important ways of, um, of understanding how <clears throat> we work with this preset, both from an ethical point of view and also a spiritual point of view and a psychological point of view, putting them all together. So, as I was mentioning in the beginning of this talk, sexual energy is just an energy which is there, which is in us. We can, we, and it's important in, even in meditation practice, you know, whether it's like today or doing, it, doing meditation by yourself, if sexual feelings arise, then open to them. If they don't arise, then they don't arise. But if they arise, open to them like you would open to any experience. Mm-hmm. And, and then, then notice or be curious about whether you just open to it like you would any experience or it leads to a grasping or it leads to a pushing away or a, a numbing out. What happens? That, that's, our, that's our challenge. Mm-hmm. But by all means, open to the experience because it's there. There is a very big difference in dealing with this like in a, in a meditation retreat. Like as a teacher, um, I'm aware that, that people tell me, you know, in privately in, in Daisan, as a way of just normalising it publicly, that one of the things, they, a couple of things that most people struggle with in terms of um, doing zazen as sexual fantasies or anger. <laughs> They're the two powerful emotions that come up that often take us away from the moment. So there's a very big difference in dealing with, with sexual energy by just opening to it in the body, you know, being with the body experience of it, but not drifting off into sexual fantasies, right? Just come back and stay with body-based um, experience. You can't go wrong with that, right? So, um, a Zen life is an intimate life. Right? It's about creating intimacy with life in all its many different um, ways. And sexuality is one way in which we can do that. It's not the only way that we can do it. And if we narrow down to that, then we miss out on understanding all the many different rich ways in which love is expressed and given in our life. But it is one powerful way in which it, in which it, it is. And um, 
it's important that we we use this energy to um, to cultivate intimacy with life in general um, rather than misusing that energy or even shutting it down because there is a huge difference between to use psychological terms between repression of sexuality and sublimation and sublimation is where that energy is is used in a in a creative constructive way but repression is destructive so this precept has a moral ethical um, lens through which you can look at it but the other way that you can look at is how do you use this wonderful energy that we've all been given. <laughs>